Welcome to the Ferguson Response Network podcast. Uh, we are actually on episode 20, if people can believe it. Uh, if this is your first time listening to us, the Ferguson Response Network podcast is a weekly podcast devoted to supporting citizens working to create lasting social change through sustained civil disobedience and civic action. I'm your host, Leslie Mack, and I'm joined as always by my illustrious co-host, Ricky L. Hines II. What's going on, Ricky? Nothing much. I just realized that it's been six months since we started this. I know. I can't believe it. It's crazy. It's nuts. It went well, since that. you started this and then I I was kindly allowed to hop on. Well, you've been on every <laughs> episode, so I could not do it without you. And you've even done an episode or two without me. So I, I appreciate it. And it's very exciting that we have made it all the way to 20 episodes. I read a statistic the other day that most podcasts don't make it past episode eight. Wow. That's the like oh, wow. cutoff most of the time. People give up by episode eight. So we're ahead of the game. If you don't know my co-host, uh, but you should by now, he's a Los Angeles native, a U.S. Navy veteran, avid Googler, blogger. He's founder of the Americans United Again movement. He hosts two other co-hosts in addition to this one, the Americans United Again po- podcast. And he co-host with the lovely Sherelle, the AUA Hope podcast, which is coming out soon. Uh, if you have are looking for us hopefully you found us this way but you can also find us on itunes and stitcher radio just search ferguson response network you can also find us on our website fergusonresponse.org and we are also featured on the aua app which you can find in the google play store or on any of your android devices and if you have actions coming up in your area or are looking for actions, you can always go to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com. You can search by date, you can search by location, and also by hashtag. But we have two awesome guests with us tonight. First, we have Kamari Ellis. What's going on, Kamari? Hi, how you doing? So happy to have you here. Uh, Thank you so much. Yeah, Kamari is an investment and tax advisor who writes podcasts and loves business, investing, hip-hop, and barbecue. That should be a book. I love that. <laughs> hip-hop and barbecue. Yes, I like no, that biz, business, <laughs> investing, hip-hop, and barbecue. I, that would be a great book title. I love that. Um, and Kamari is in the Philadelphia area, so a welcome to the show. Happy to have you here. And we also have Jonathan Newton. Hey, Jonathan, what's going on? Good, good, good. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Jonathan is the president of the National Association Against Police Brutality. He's currently a law student at the University of the District of Columbia Law School, and he is a former law enforcement officer. So we have a lot of knowledge here on the panel. Uh, I'm going to mention, usually we do a bunch of news items, but we have a very a large topic tonight, and I don't want to spend too much time on the other stuff, but I do want to mention two things. One is that tomorrow is the National Day of Action for Black Women and Girls. Um, and you can find uh, 19 cities that are hosting actions tomorrow uh, for justice for Rikia Boyd and Ayanna Jones and all the other women that we have lost um, at the hands of police uh, brutality. Uh, you can find them on our website at fergusonresponse.tumblr.com backslash say her name. Uh, they are Chicago, New York, Columbus, Oakland, Miami, New Orleans, Louisville, Lexington, Philadelphia, Ann Arbor, Indianapolis, Charlotte, Seattle, Asheville, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Nashville, Washington, Baltimore, Memphis, and Los Angeles are all hosting events tomorrow. I'm really excited about it. I hope that we get a really good turnout. If not, I'm holding Ricky personally responsible. Um, 
So hopefully, it's my fault anyway. All, all those dudes will come out and support us as as we women have been taking to the streets uh, for our brothers for uh, for these two hundred and 80 plus days um and so that's tomorrow one other very exciting thing was the announcement last week of the movement for black lives national convening which is happening july 24th through the 26th in cleveland ohio it is going to be an unprecedented uh gathering of black organizers activists and just black people from across the country um to just get together, uh, commune with each other, um, have some open spaces for us to, to gather and build the movement together and take uh, some lessons and some cohesiveness back to our individual communities. Again, that's going to be July 24th through the 26th. And you can uh, go to m4bl.org or just search Movement for Black Lives anywhere that you'd like to. You'll find it. Um, and it's brought to you. The the um, event itself is co-hosted by a ton of organizations, including Black Lives Matter, the Black Youth Project, Ferguson Action, the Ohio Student Association, the Organization for Black Struggle, Million Hoodies Movement for Justice, Ferguson Response Network, um, and many, many others. So uh, be on the lookout for that. I'm really excited about the about the convening. It's going to be it's going to be really special, and I'm just really excited about it. So I'm so jealous. I probably can't go, and I want to go so bad. Well, so I'm bad. <laughs> I'm on the logistics team. We actually had a meeting last night, and I'm like in my head, like maybe we could live stream some stuff and make get make it accessible yes. to people that may not be able to make it. So those discussions are, are definitely being had, and I'm I'm a proponent of those things. So hopefully, uh, we'll be able to to fit that in. But I think it's going to be really amazing, and we're really tapping into um, the Cleveland community and really. Um, taking a lot of lead from them to see what they need, what what kind of support they're looking for, and just really, you know, immersing ourselves not just with each other in the movement, but also in the local, um, the local needs of the community in Cleveland, which are which are plentiful. So, I'm really excited mm-hmm. to to get to do that. I'll probably be going to Cleveland a little before before then, and then of course I'll be there that weekend. So it'll be really cool. But today we yeah. are. If I don't make it, if if for some reason I will, it, odds are. I can't make it. But if for some reason I am able to make it, mm-hmm. John, Molly, I'm staying at your house. Mm-mm. Just shout out to John, Molly, of the painting. You're already, you're already I'm, calling I'm on, that. I'm on your couch. <laughs> I called their couch. They have a newborn. <laughs> you sure you want to do that? I don't know. LP's I, pretty I'm, tough. I mean, I'm a Navy vet. I can sleep oh, You can do anything. it. You can do it. I got it. Uh, I've slept. I've, I used to be stationed on an aircraft carrier. So you either learn how to sleep with a, an airport above you or you just don't sleep. So. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, we have a pretty large topic tonight. We want to delve into some of the economics of white supremacy, um, and, and the ways that they manifest itself in our current society and then bring us to where we Mm -hmm. are today. So I'm going to actually turn the reins over to Ricky. This is your area of expertise. I know you've been doing lots of research on this and I'll, I'll jump in and so will our guests since they, they're going to have lots to say about this too, but, but let's get into it. Let's do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, now, I, I, this one is this is like you said a really expansive topic. I I really didn't know how to completely tackle this, so we're gonna do what we can with with given the time span that we have. This is probably a three or four day discussion. Um, but uh, what I wanted to do is kind of set the stage with some statistics regarding the economic standpoint when we talk about the uh, when we talk about white supremacy. The the most common uh, definition that's used is the valuing of white lives over uh, 
all others and most notably black people's. Um, that that also comes in economic form, of course, and it's uh, it's ugly. <laughs> I don't I don't know. Have you guys have you guys gotten the opportunity to kind of power look through the the stats or whatever? I started yeah. looking through them and got depressed, and I was like, I'm gonna just wait till the show because I could just be depressed on here with all you guys. Well, I, yeah. I, I looked at I looked at the uh, the income disparities and uh, across the board. Um, and I also looked at, uh, you know, how long it's been going on and it's, it's systemic. It's, it's a problem that, you know, basically European folks have been doing this since existence. So yeah. I, I looked at it in terms of, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's becoming, uh, so pervasive that people actually start defining it based on, they think that it's human nature. And I, I said, no, it's, it's something that's completely nurtured. It's something that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is fostered uh, through the systems that we have in the world. And, um, you know, we don't actually talk about it out in the open, and that actually causes it to, to exist and, and, and become, you know, more entrenched in our minds and our psyches and in our cultures. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the biggest part of it is is the fact that it's a system and that a system thrives on people making logical decisions um, in order for it to function. So when you talk about the economics behind white supremacy, let's look at a few of the um, areas. So first is the wealth gap. And um, as of 2013, white net worth was 13 times greater than black net worth. Um, black people had, black families had a median net worth of $11,000 in 2013. Um, this was the most recent data that's available, uh, whereas white net worth was at $141,900. So it's no secret that, that this is fucking egregious. Jesus. I mean, um, when you look at that stat, like it's astounding because of the, you know, the, 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 percentage more you know the number of times you mentioned but for me i think about it in real terms where you're talking about a year's salary for a lot of people for some people multiple years salary versus a night at the movies like for real in terms of net Mm -hmm. worth this is it's crazy Mm -hmm. it's really it's 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 really insane yeah it's, it's been pretty consistent over over the course of history, so this is no secret to anyone. When, when you look at when you look at America, you know wealth is based on land, and we didn't come here and steal it from Native Americans. Uh, when it was offered for free in land grabs, it wasn't offered to black folks who were here. And mm-hmm. even when it was started to be sold, you know, even when it started to be profitized and sold, it wasn't uh, it wasn't offered to black people. And so that um, that's 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 what, you know, set white folks apart in terms of, you know, wealth in this country. In addition to that, you know, you have uh, an entire 250 years worth of free labor that was 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 provided to companies and organizations and people. And and that Mm -hmm. creates a gap in, you know, wealth creation. Uh, and yeah, networks absolutely. and so forth, and so that's 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 what we're dealing with. I mean, we're closing that gap. So, so even where we're at right now, 
you know, it looks it's a better outlook than it, what it was, but that's still not saying much, you know, because the the the, the gap is so significant. Um, uh, yeah. Well, the gap is yeah. actually widening, uh, and the gap uh, began to widen after the tw- uh, 2008 financial crisis. Mm. Um, and, right. and and there's a lot of there's a lot of different reasons um, for the. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll actually get into the causes and okay. in, in a little bit because um, I want to focus on just the statistics and give everybody the numbers so that they understand um, like what we're working with. So the average American er- or average African American earnings. Um, Really, about 1.6% of us make over $200,000. Uh, 9% makes 100,000 100, to, or I'm sorry, 100,000 to 200,000. Uh, black households, the majority of them fall into the 35K to 100K right. uh, range, and that's 37%. Uh, the next largest is uh, 15 to 35 at 27, and then uh, 25%, 25.4 make under 15k which is basically the 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 poverty poverty line and the average um, average household income for a black family is 34,598 so it's it, you know we're we're talking a, we're talking about a huge disparity um let's see and even the rate of poverty, when you look at it, uh, of course, when we're talking about wealth, the other opposite, the opposite end of that is poverty, of course. Um, the poverty rate for white people is 10%, blacks is 28%, um, and that's over over the course of say the last 50 years, that's definitely gone down. Um, it, 19, what is that? 1960. Five or so, we're looking. We were looking at a uh, poverty rate of forty-two percent. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things have definitely gotten better in that regard. Um, let's see. And another subject that I wanted to touch on was uh, black income inequality, because not a lot of people think about income inequality when it comes to uh, black Americans. Period. Um, Income inequality within the black community is actually worse than the national average and noticeably worse than uh, among white Americans. Uh, the top fifth or the top 20 percent of, of the country holds or takes the share of 49 uh, percent of aggregate income and the top five takes 21.2 percent. Um, that's basically half. And then when you look at uh, the share of aggregate income with respect to non-Hispanic whites, you're looking at uh, the top 20 percent of the population owning 46.8 percent of the wealth, uh, where and the top five making 20.6 uh, percent of the wealth overall. Um, th- and th- these are all, the, the numbers and charts will all be in the show notes. So it's if you want to take a look at these in more detail. Um, but black families, um, well, I'm sorry, black uh, households, the highest fifth takes home 51.2% of the aggregate income. And this was as, mind you, all of these numbers are as of, as of uh, 2013. The, black, the top 5% of black families have a 22 point, 22% share of black aggregate income. So basically the top 
20%, which is, what, there's 45 million of us, yeah, about 9 million people, make more than half of the aggregate income. Um, the And when we talk about the top 1%, when we're mentioning income inequality, uh, it's black people make up a total of 1.4% uh, of the top 1% of households in in the country and whereas whites make up fucking all of it basically we might as well just <laughs> literally 96 percent of of the um, makeup of the top one percent is white people so uh, another thing that plays into that is the unemployment gap um leslie did you want to go over this because i'm getting depressed having to say all this i shit. know right <laughs> oh gosh so yeah so <laughs> <laughs> the unemployment rates are, are not any better, of course. Uh, we're looking at currently, it had its peak in, in the disparity in 83, where uh, blacks were at 19.5% unemployment and whites at 8.4%. And currently, uh, whites are at 6.7% unemployment and blacks are more than twice that, 13.4%. Um, and, you know, um, when Kamari mentioned the crash, uh, I, you know, of course, because it was a housing market crash, it affected black people more than anybody else. Uh, we lost the most uh, equity. We mo lost the most of any wealth that had been um, put together. And, and we're talking about uh, a housing system that has systematically um, and systemically denied us access to it at every turn. And so here we see a, a rare opportunity when black people were putting money into dwellings into land and we are still taken advantage of even in that scenario um mm -hmm. and you see that play out in these in these unemployment rates because as the economy gets better does not mean that it's getting better for black people no and basically the the unemployment rate the ratio of black to white unemployment rate has jumped is basically always trended at about twice the national average or twice that of white people um that that's that says something and that's that now mind you that's regardless of education um that's regardless of really any any qualifier that you you'd think of with respect to um why someone wouldn't get a job absolutely did you did you guys have uh, anything to add about the unemployment rates? Just that you've well, seen. Well, un unemployment the unemployment rate has been double that at a national average for at least the last fifty years. Mm -hmm. I mean, when King marched on Washington, again the, the unemployment rate was double that for black communities versus that of white communities. So, mm -hmm. as you said earlier, it's systemic. Um, the, the, the difference now, and I don't know if you want to go into this now versus then, is we had more black businesses. Uh, back then, and a lot of people don't realize, and a lot of people don't realize that black businesses are the biggest employers of black folks um, across the nation, excluding government. That is, so you know there there are a lot right. of different factors, and I guess my take on on white supremacy is I think it's something that's here, but how do we best empower ourselves to to live on in spite of white supremacy? Yeah, because I, I I don't. The external, the external existence of white supremacy. I, I'm not saying that we can't take that on. I'm saying the internal things that we do. To, if we want to close the unemployment, the unemployment uh, uh, gap that, that we have, 
the time is now for us to start looking at ways that we can actually employ ourselves and manufacture things ourselves and, and provide for uh, um, uh, opportunities, economic opportunities ourselves. I think that the uh, mm-hmm. unemployment gap that has existed over the last 50 years that Kamara pointed out is because white folks don't really have a use for us. And, 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 and that's being said uh, while not being said. So if 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 the government if the government hires us then 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 we'll have an opportunity to have a job. Uh, private corporations uh, when they do hire us it's 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 basically for a token. It should be nothing for the black uh, community to be fully employed. We represent 12.9 percent, almost 13 percent of this uh, this population. We mm-hmm. should be we could be hired instantaneously uh, and put to full employment. So it's it's you know, people try to add all these qualifiers to the conversation. Well, you don't have the education. You don't have the experience. When you really raster that all the way down to it, it's because you're black. And, you know, when you mm-hmm. look at small companies, um, you see pictures of people, you know, in their small organizations. Their, their lack of diversity shows. And mm-hmm. so the, the, that, the unemployment gap that has is, is, is existed is because people make decisions based on color and not based on uh, skill or 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 education or some of these other things and the laws that are on the books uh that uh that, that I'm learning in law school it's more difficult to prove racial discrimination in an employment situation than it ever has been even in the past when the laws were made they were way mm-hmm. stronger than what they are now they've made it so that you literally have to uh, catch somebody saying, I'm not employing you because you're black, and I don't like all black folks. Um, mm-hmm. In order for you to, to, to be able to prove racial discrimination in an employment, uh, an employment uh, matter. So the, 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 this is going to exist for some, some time. I, 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 when we get to the causes of unemployment, that's it. We're not hired mm-hmm. because we're not desired. Uh, when we get to the solutions to that, it's an internal conversation that needs to be had. How do we employ ourselves? And, and, and when I'm around speaking, you know, I, I tell people, look, we make uh, employment decisions every single day. Uh, we employ Nike for our shoes. We employ uh, Purdue and Tyson for the chicken that we buy, you know. But we should be employing ourselves. We should, we should have uh, uh, factories and, 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 and chicken farms ourselves by now that employ black people. We have to stop looking to external people to actually employ us and do it in our, doing it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on a little bit towards the earnings gap because that also plays a role into, you know, the accumulation of wealth and unemployment. Like even if you are able to get a job, um, you end up making less than, <laughs> less than just about everyone with the exception of Hispanics. Uh, the average median weekly earnings for a full-time worker uh, white men make uh, 896 a week. White women 728. Black men 646, and black women is 621. Now there is an there is a really interesting um, and well and the actual national average is 869 for men and 713 for women. And there's like a basically about an 82% difference in weekly median earn median weekly earnings, um, but the one thing that I, I did want to look at is the pay gap between black men and black women. It's actually by and far the smallest of any um, racial group, period. It's at 96% with uh, you know black women making 621 and black men making 646. Uh, any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> I got a lot. 
Yeah, I got a lot of thoughts on it. Um, uh, historically, black women have have taken on and had the ability to get higher education more so than typically black men. Um, I think that's changing a bit now, but you know, it's it's still the same. You see folks like Ursula Barnes, who is the CEO of Xerox, uh, CEO, but it's it's not as commonplace to see black men as, as CEOs of prominent corporations. And, and there are some, but I'm just saying that it's a time now where you're seeing a lot more black women who are making strides in corporate America. And um, you don't see you don't see the same strides, I think, on the, the black male side as much. For the educate to, to to get the education, or are yeah, you talking to get, about the? I'm sorry yeah. to get to to get the education and then transfer that into either a business or a high yeah. paying a high paying job in corporate America. We still have a we still have a, a messaging gap inside our communities about the importance of education. And uh, I was at a church function the other uh, two weekends ago, and <clears throat> some 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 generations that are before us still think that uh, we're in a, a, an age where a man can make a living by the sweat of his brow and by the, you know, the, the work of his hands. And uh, those messages are, you know, when young kids hear those messages, they go out and they follow on those messages. I, when, I was, uh, gradu- when I graduated high school in 1993, I didn't go, and, uh, go to directly to college. I listened to some people who, you know, and I, and I mean, it just might have been a mistake back then, but it, it also helped me learn a, a great deal about the value of the, the, the formal education and the higher higher degrees. But uh, when I left high school, I went straight into the workforce, into printing, and um, I watched that, uh, that industry uh, literally deteriorate over the next 10 years. And um, even though I had the ability to make a living at one point, it, it became something that, uh, that I had to retool myself and uh, to make myself – you know, valuable and employable. It, it, it transitioned into a newspaper business, a newspaper publishing business that I had. But, you know, some of those messages are still, you know, I heard this literally at the church that I was at, you know, everybody can't be doctors and lawyers, and we're not saying that. But I am saying that everybody needs to look at getting uh, at least a college degree. Uh, when, when Obama said that, I felt that, you know, that was good. It was pushing us in the right direction. Because not only for uh, the sake of just having the degree, uh, for the earning income potential, but also for learning the history of some of the stuff that's been done to us on a on a, on a larger level. Um, so that's uh, that's what I have to say about the income. Well, I actually I actually agree with that, and I echo a lot of those same comments. I would take it a, a step further. I think the messaging around um, higher education in our community is is a bit off kilter because many of us mm-hmm. think we should only go to school to get a job. Um, right. not to become better thinkers, not to become business owners. Um, and it's nothing wrong with getting a job or, or going into business or being a thinker, but it just seems like we don't hold those things in high esteem, or at least from a messaging standpoint. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it seems like it's not cool to be a nerd anymore, but as we all know, nerds rule the world. And yeah. if there's any democracy or any level playing field, if there is such a thing, it's in the higher it's in the higher educational spaces. Um, technology um, is a bit more democratized than anywhere else. It, it's not without fault, not without problem, but uh, it's it's a, a bit easier to make your way up the ladder than it is in some of these other more traditional spaces. Mm-hmm. Mario, when I when I graduated high school, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's interesting to say that when I graduated high school. 
I was one of these that went out there and I hit the ground running. I was like, I'm going to make good money because I know I've got a skill and I can make $25 an hour. And I'm one of these late bloomers, you know. Real, I, I didn't graduate uh, undergrad. I was 40 years old when I graduated undergrad. But the industry that I got in uh, coming out of high school was printing, and then it transitioned into the newspaper publishing because I was laying out newspapers, and, and, and I decided to do my own community newspapers down in Palm Beach County and then down in Clayton County, Georgia. But it's interesting because when I started realizing, you know, I like to read. I like to think. I like to fix problems that are, you know, system problems in my own business, you know. And then when I went to college and I started seeing how it was, you know, how this degree basically qualifies us in the employment place, it, it became valuable to me. I think the messaging, like you said, you know, if if if, if we can get consistent with that messaging, uh, we'll see brothers begin to get those degrees uh, and actually, you know be able to earn more money, not necessarily through being employed by somebody else, but by feeling qualified to actually run their own stuff. You know, when I finished law school, I told everybody, I'm not, I'm not really interested in, 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 in finding somebody in a law firm to go to work for. I'm, I'm, I'm to the stage where I'm going to go and find me a, a strip mall someplace and put up a sign that says, lawyer, now working, now soon. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, I'm, I'm actually looking at the education statistics. And these, I mean, these are as, as of like 2009, 2010. This is like the quickest I could pull up. Um, we, as far as as far as degree distrib- distribution, um, we're right as far as associates are concerned, we're right in line with where we where we uh, our share of the population at 13.7 um, percent of all associates degrees. A little underrepresented with respect to the percentage of all bachelor's degrees at 10.3 and uh, it is it is worthwhile to note that um, 65% of these degrees were almost well basically 66% of these degrees were conferred to to women, um, but that's also that not uh, 66 so, with respect to bachelor's degrees. So, so two now, thirds, so two thirds mm-hmm. of educational degrees, you know, bachelor bachelor level degrees are going to black women. Mm-hmm. That that's telling. Yeah, that's, yeah, but there's also a caveat too that. With respect to the national average, um, which is fifty six percent, like it's off, but it's not really as it's not really as as big as it may seem. Um, I think the biggest disparity with respect to uh, black women and black men would be master's degrees, where they make up seventy one point one percent. Like that's well, first off, good on good on black women that they're even that that they're going out to get these degrees. Um, and, and succeeding, but the other thing too is is that we we've created this culture, this American culture that Black people also subscribe to. Where if you're talking about getting a good job, going you have to go to college, and you have to go to if you want a good job, if you want to be able to make a good living. By and large, um, that's what it's going to take. So when you take a, a subculture, because Black America is a subculture, and we share a lot of those those influences from American culture, this is, this is the problem that you have. This is what you see, especially when you factor in the uh, poverty and then you factor in the fact, uh, the prison industrial complex and how it disproportionately targets uh, men, although it targets black women just uh, unfortunately quite a bit as well. Um, there's, there, there are other statistical factors that I think that kind of explain that. 
to some degree. Do you explain, guys explain um, explain what? The disparity between uh black men and black women who Okay, well, I mean, d- just for the record, I wasn't I wasn't saying that there were no other issues. I was just, you right. know, talking oh, no. about no, no, the no. aggregate of there are more black women going to school and completing and then doing further um, continuing ed, uh, secondary ed type things than there are black men. Let's look at that in the social context and in, in, in the pressures of what black women feel. Like, I have, a, I have an 18-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old son. And this is one thing I, I kind of noticed even when I was coming up. There was more pressure on black males to get out the house and actually go and do than there was for, you know, uh, black females. So in other words, we have, uh, you know, the, the female can stay here and she can, she can, you know, go to college and do some stuff. But I want to make sure that my, I want to make sure that my black male, that he gets out of here and he's working and he's doing this and he's doing that. And again, I think it goes back to the messaging. You know, we, we have we have fostered in our culture that uh and this is part of white supremacy that the black male really is valued for his strength and for his physical dexterity and for how much work he can physically put out whereas uh being a buck. We, yeah being a, there you go so 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 that has not been uh that message has not been propelled as much for our for our women our women have been uh, uh, uh told that they're great nurturers uh that they're great organizers that they're great uh thinkers and so forth and so what you have is you have this natural progression for black males to uh want to uh, live up to the expectation that's placed upon them to hey man you better go out here and get you a good job you know and so uh, we we tend to go. I, I felt an immense pressure to go out and find a job when I was, you know, coming out of high school back then. And we that again, like, like I said, putting that in its social in its social context, you're able to see what kind of drives some of that mentality. So if you if you wanted to to to, to deconstruct that and reconstruct it, the message needs to be told to young black men. Uh, uh, you know, to even out those numbers, that disparity there. That hey, man, you can be an organizer. Hey, did you know that you can get you you can get paid to write. You can get paid to think through uh, problems and issues at a younger age. Right now, we're still, uh, you know, I watch uh, uh, football coaches the way that they're able to talk to the young men on on the sideline and then the coaches uh, inside the locker rooms and stuff. We need to be able to talk to them like that in the classrooms and push uh, for, uh, you know, critical thinking skills the exact same way that we push for the physical dexterity and the physical uh, proudness that we push them out on the football fields and the basketball courts and the baseball diamonds. We don't really do that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, when, a, when, when, when we find our value in our head, in between our ears, then I think that uh, not only do we – do we gravitate towards those types of careers and that type of education, but we excel in it. You know, when we get inside uh, a college someplace, we excel at it because this is our first time on that particular field. And, uh, you know, so I think our messaging in the social context needs to change towards pushing young black males to actually be critical thinkers in, in doing those types of things. And what and do I- you guys think about the 
issues related to um, debt accumulation with regard to higher education yes, that was, and how yeah. that adversely affects black people so much more than it does our white counterparts. This is for black women and black men, but it's very significant and it's serious and can, and can muddle your future for such a significant a amount time. of time and yeah. hamper mm-hmm. it in so many different ways and, and, and stop you from doing things like, um, you know, buying land or acquiring a home and, and things that build wealth um, over the long term. So what, what do you guys think about that? Should, should we be advocating for alternative ways of getting higher education, maybe starting with community college and then transitioning let, into getting a four-year let, degree? Well, or me, where, where, I, where do you I, I, would, I would like to say I think we should really um, start a lot younger and really get in tune with our children's learning styles mm. um, because I wanted to piggyback on something that Jonathan was saying about um, going to school and becoming an earner. Uh, a lot of times when you look at the educational system versus boys versus girls, a lot of times girls are a bit more suited, just from my anecdotal uh, evaluation, a bit more suited for the current educational system that's in place that hasn't really changed over the last 100, 150 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. A, lot of, a lot of times boys are not meant to sit for six hours at a time. And I know they get recess and get lunch and, and learn. Um, and, but then also drawing down a little bit further, every child has a different type of learning style. So I think it's especially critical for our children to get in tune with that a lot earlier. And once they discover that they are geniuses and they can learn and they can do everything else that everybody else can do, I think a lot of the student loan debt problem will kind of take care of itself Mm. because you're seeing, you're seeing that these children now that are being homeschooled, a lot of the black children now are being homeschooled. They're kicking butt. They're getting accepted into college at 13, 14 and 15 years old. So they, they, they did an alternative to what is traditionally done. Now, a lot of people will push back and say, well, you'll have social social problems and the, the dynamic is a bit different. But there's a lot of children that I personally know that were homeschooled and are perfectly socially adjusted. So I think we have to start looking at that. Um, and I think that will definitely help to, to bring down the, the debt issue. Because, yeah, it, it does hinder buying land and buying property. I know a lot of my clients have student loan problems. Um, and it, it stops them from doing a lot of things. When most of your check goes to paying off Uncle Sam for your education, uh, something wrong with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Kamari, I'm going I'm to follow up with what Kamari said. I'm looking at, I'm in my office right now. I'm looking at my undergraduate degree that I got, and I did this uh, in 16 months, okay? And it was completely non-traditional. Uh, from, I'm going to send a, a shout-out to my alma mater, Thomas Edison State College in Trenton, New Jersey. And... There are so many non-traditional ways that are out there that you can earn an undergraduate degree from a regionally accredited college, but they're not very known. And um, I was talking with uh, uh, some folks with the uh, Tom Joyner show about propelling some of these, you know, just promoting some of these these ways. Um, the way I earned my degree, and from from zero hours all the way to 120 hours, my degree. Uh, all the fees and all everything, it was less than seven thousand dollars. And wow. um, I, I, I'm writing a book about this. This is this is very. Uh, and I'm in law school. I'm in law school on a merit scholarship. I I, I maintained a 4.0 average uh, throughout the undergrad process. But this is known, and this is what I say: we got to be careful where we get our information from, and what we continue to repeat. Um, 
because this has been known that you can earn a degree this way, but it hasn't been known in our culture. Uh, a lot of the government jobs, the guys who work in, in the military, when they want to, when they've got to get a degree as quickly as possible and as affordable as possible, they test out of certain classes. And in most colleges, it's, you know, it's, it's known as called CLEP, College Level Examination Program. Mm -hmm. And what that allows you to do is basically test out of a lot of undergraduate, uh, uh, uh courses, you know, the basic courses like, U.S. History 1, U.S. History 2, Western Civilization. So I, I set myself up a grid, and I basically matched every course that I needed for my undergraduate degree with, uh, with the, the, the correlating uh, um, test that was available through CLEP. And then there was some advanced level of college work that you could test out of as well through uh, Dante's and BSFT. Right. And uh, I built my degree program. My degree is in social sciences. Um, and like I said, I, I, I would, we can come back and do a whole nother show about that, but we've got to stop getting our, our, our information from the traditional sources because, you know, I got a buddy of mine, he graduated, um, he just graduated from, uh, uh, uh Phoenix and he owes him like $60,000. Um, and he was like, how did you do it? I'm like, listen, you know, here it is. I, I know you think this is crazy, but this is how I did it. And I got all of my books from a Goodwill store downloaded, you know, syllabus, read through just like, you know, I needed to read through, studied and went and, and took the examinations on a college campus in a proctored environment. Uh, and, and $106 will, uh, for that test, earns you three semester hours of college credit. So there were days where I was going down there taking three tests in one day and walking out with nine semester hours. It's important that we do those different methods because Everything has changed in this country and in this world to faster, better ways of learning. There's almost no reason why somebody should be sitting for four years to, to earn an undergraduate degree, unless you just want to. Yeah, and the other thing I think that plays a role um, is just areas of concentrated poverty. Um, the 2006 to 2010 average for black people, um, or I'm sorry, poor children living in areas of concentrated poverty, was 45 percent um and that is and concentrated poverty is defined as uh let's see a census tract with a poverty rate of 30 percent or higher so when you have an area of like hyper poverty and you know you see these in large metropolitan areas new york philly baltimore um miami los angeles chicago i you can name every big city, and I'm pretty sure there's a black ghetto. Yeah, D.C., Atlanta. Um, these areas, like, the solutions that we've talked about thus far, um, that we've kind of touched on thus far, are helpful. They're, I think they're helpful to a subset of um, black children who can, who can afford to do these types of things. But when you live in an area of concentrated poverty where your mother's working, you know, two part-time jobs at 29 hours because they don't want to pay her a full-time wage – you don't have time for homeschool and so you yeah. end up following through you it's 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 a funneling through of of a large subsegment of the black population that just can it, it that makes it so difficult to tackle these things on a systemic issue like me personally this information would have helped me a hell of a lot 10 eight ten years ago um before mm -hmm. i made a, a few mistakes with with respect to like where i decided to go get my education and whatever um but 
by and large, I know that I'm relative. I know that I was relatively fortunate to even be able to do that, despite coming out of, um, despite living in an area of concentrated poverty. Mm-hmm. So I, I want us uh, to kind of keep that in mind because, again, these yeah, are you, extremely you, helpful. Yeah, you don't have, and inside these areas, I live in Southeast D.C., and my wife teaches at uh, an elementary school uh, here in Southeast D.C., and uh, there's no doubt about it. These kids do not have the same opportunity and the same options that, 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 uh, you know, somebody, nobody's homeschooling here because ain't nobody going to be at home. You know, um, like you said, the mother's out, she's having to work 60 hours to be able to keep pace with what she just needs to put food on the table and clothes on their backs. What's failed in our communities in the last 50 years, and, and, and it just, you know, I'm not saying that this is the solve all even now, but what we used to have 50 years ago, we used to have an infrastructure that involved churches, that involved uh, community organizations that actually picked up slack and offered all kinds of programs. Um, we adopted sort of like a get rich or die trying mentality in the 80s, along with uh, white America. You know, everybody was getting so filthy rich in, in America through, you know, all kinds of financial ways that, you know, that, that, that mentality got adopted into our churches and subsequently into some of our uh, community service organizations. And so people uh, started cutting back on doing things that would pick up the slack for, uh, you know, if you had a father, my father was incarcerated, but there was a lot of, 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 of people in the community to pick up slack and push a kid in a dif- different direction. The infra, like I said, another thing is even if we had that infrastructure now, um, if, if, the, if the if the messaging is wrong, if the wording, if, if we're still telling people, yeah, go to school, so go to college so you can get a good education so you can find a good job. And by the way, um, you know, as, as Brother Harvey remember saying on, the, on the show, you know, um, go to Strayer. No, don't go to Strayer. Consider some other options, the local community college. Consider anything that you can do non-traditionally with your computer. Consider Khan Academy so that you can uh, challenge some, you know, we, we've got to start beginning to push ways that people can think outside of the box because the box that's created has been created for a certain reason to keep you and keep us impoverished and in a certain position. So Yeah, I think what I, I, I think what Ricky's yeah. getting at though is that there are so many um base level issues and needs that are not being met that even having a discussion like we're having right now is a uh, almost a privilege to even have that as something that you're struggling with or trying to, trying to, you know, when you're in a community that has no access to fresh fruit, vegetables and meat on a regular basis, you know, we're talking about, I talk to people all the time that say to me, you know, I can't get a state ID because I don't have my birth certificate. I don't have a light bill with my name on it. And now I can't apply for a job. We're talking yeah. about a situation where we have swaths of our communities that aren't even able to 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 have a that having six points to of ID to get a to get a state ID and the money to pay for it. I might I add is a luxury. Um, yeah. So we have so many base needs that aren't being met that contributes all these things. And you're definitely right. It's meant to keep us in a box. It's meant to keep us down. It's meant to have a a lower working class so that that the country can function the way that it has for the last 400 plus years. Right. I I would like to push back on that just a little bit. Um, I I definitely, there's definitely a need um, in the lower communities, but everybody's got somebody in a lower community, right? In a lower socioeconomic community. Um, The African-American community in America generates upwards of $1 trillion a year. Now, now where is that money going? 
And as Jonathan mentioned before, you know, we had more of an infrastructure uh, with churches and other programs and things like that. And we still had that to a certain degree. But where is that $1 trillion going? So we took that $1 trillion. Matter of fact, let me back up. Maggie Anderson does a wonderful TED Talk. Um, she wrote a book called My Black Year. And she said African-Americans spend 2% of their dollars in black businesses. If we just increase that, not anything astronomical from 2% to 10%, we would have an economic boost right away, and it would create 1 million jobs. So we already know that the, the odds are stacked against us. The question we got well, to start I have, asking. I have a quick question. Okay. I, have, I have a quick question on that, actually. Um, what percentage of black income is discretionary? What all percentage? of it. Well, no. All of it. All of it. At some point, at some point, you have to pay. You have to pay the rent. You have to pay bills. There aren't any. There aren't very many. You know. But but we're talking. uh, But we're talking an eight percent difference. So, and again, it may not. It might not be for. It might not be exactly for those folks who might live in housing projects. But it might be for their cousins who live two blocks away. And if their cousins are able to generate jobs and create businesses, they're able to go back to the projects to their other family and, and extend the job to them and extend other um, income producing opportunities for them. So, I mean, I, I know we definitely can never forget our brothers and sisters, but I think we also have to look at the bigger picture um, a lot of times as well. And I think we, we waste a lot of money. We spend a lot Man, of money with no, with with no direction. With I'm no with direction. you on that. I, yeah. I'm, I, I, when I'm out talking about economic empowerment, I hate the question when it comes up. So what's, you know, what's it going to take to get the black economic engine going? And, and, and what's it going to take for blacks to get, you know, economic empowerment? And I, I, I'm really pointed when I answer that question. We just need to stop spending money with people that don't reinvest money in our communities, period. I mean, if you just take three things that we spend, I'm sure that each one of us, not all, you know, I, Everybody in our community has spent some money on on these three things: chicken, tennis shoes, and hair and beauty products. Those three sectors alone could probably bring Black America to full employment. Period. But we don't own the factories. We don't own the chicken farms, nor do we own the um, uh, the fast food restaurants that serve us the chicken. They're all owned by other people operating inside our communities. We don't own the factories that make the shoes. And every pair of shoes that has been selling in America, before it got to the level that it did, black people had to put them on their feet for them to become valuable in America. Uh, mm. So the hair that's being sold in droves now, it wasn't, it wasn't popular until black women started putting it in their hair. So uh, we make discretionary decisions with our dollars that cause us to be put in these positions of unemployment until we change that you know we we, we should expect uh, to, to 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 be in the same exact position okay so i actually was able to find the numbers on it um as of 2012 black households controlled uh 131 billion in, in discretionary income so we're going from so we're talking maybe what what is that 12 percent 12 13 percent of discretionary income we spend two percent um I mean, the numbers are there, but that would take a that that would take a lot. Um, is would is that really? feasible? Would what, really? what do you mean? Would it, what, what do you mean? Would it take a lot? What well, you, you're you're talking about shifting. You're talking you're talking about shifting eight percent out of uh, what about? You're t- yeah, basically over half of the uh, 
I just wish we could just try and experiment. Like, if we could just first, the, the, the hardest part of the whole thing, and Kamari, tell me if I'm wrong, would be to get us on one page just for 30 days to where everybody says, this month, this month, we're only spending money with and lay out who we're spending that money with. Then the next month say, we're only spending money with this group of employers. And we can move it around and play, you know, hot seat with them to determine who would be most beneficial and most likely to hire us or that we could mimic that particular business model in our own communities and set that stuff up ourselves. The Asians don't have this problem. The Jewish man doesn't have this problem. Why? Because they're spending money with inside people who look like them and in their communities. And some people might say that I'm being... They, not only we have money to spend, we just spend it in the wrong place. Yeah, we have like, money to spend. We have money to spend. We, you know, I mean, Chris Rock's, you know, there's a lot of comedy that's out there, but it's, it, it really echoes a lot of truth. We just spend it in the wrong areas. We spend it with people who don't spend it back with us. I, you know, I... I think we're gonna to have to disagree there. I just well, think the, that the, because you're talking about lift, you're, you're talking about shifting literally out of 13 percent of, of income. You're talking about shifting two thirds um, on discretionary income. It's possible. It's absolutely possible. I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm not um, sure, but it's. I don't know that that should be the only approach. But two thirds. I mean, black blacks in America generate 1.6. We're roughly between 1.2 and 1.6 trillion dollars. Um, so, and we spend two percent so, in our community, and the so do- actually that's the black, less, right? So the black, so that would black, be less. The black dollar only stays in the black community for approximately six six hours. Now, these, this isn't my research. This is Maggie Anderson's. I would advise everybody to just Google that. Our black year. She wrote a book about mm-hmm. her experiment about her and her family buying nothing but black. Now, of course, we're not talking about utilities and mortgage mm-hmm. company and things like that, but, you know, all her discretionary income from, uh, you know, grocery shopping to to buying shoes to, you know, going on trips and vacations. And it, it was hard. It was brutal. Now, there's a couple mm-hmm. there's a couple different reasons for that, but, you know, not having the uh, accessibility to enough black businesses is one. There's not a black, there's not a lot of black grocery stores owned in a lot of our communities. So just imagine if we had a black grocery store. I'm in Philadelphia. I don't think there's mm-hmm. one black grocery store here, but we have major food deserts. Who who would be the first nine times out of ten? I don't want to just paint with a super broad brush, but nine times out of ten, who's going to be the first? person to give food to those food deserts or at least open a store in those food deserts. It's, it's going to be a black person nine times out of ten. But we had to create these economically viable businesses in order for them right. to be able to in order for them to be able to do that. And that's the part that we're not that we're not uh, totally getting. And, and, right. and, and a big part of it is that we run from anything financial. We, we, we run from it. We may talk about credit cards. We may talk about buying a car. We may talk about a lot of other things, but we don't really talk about how to invest our dollar, how to be real stewards of our money. Now, the, the biggest things I wrote an article, kind of tongue in cheek article a while ago about is hip hop killing the black economy. Um, and, and according to Nielsen, because Nielsen and the Black Newspaper Association does a report almost every year on African American spending. And so the three biggest areas of spending were cell phones, fast food, 
in cars, if I remember on the top of my head, I don't have the mm-hmm. article right in front of me. Mm-hmm. So all, all of those things, now granted, they may not all be at the super, super low rate, but there are a lot of people in the projects who have cell phones, and they're able to figure out how to pay that bill. Now, I'm not begrudging them. I'm not judging them. This is without judgment. It's just a statement of fact. So th- those monies are still being taken out of our communities and being used for something else. Because I'm looking at this from an aggregate standpoint, not necessarily, you know, an individualized standpoint. So those monies are being taken out of the community and being directed somewhere else and enriching other folks. Black folks in America have a very unique situation. So I think we have to approach our solutions in a very unique uh, way as well. Yeah, but even to to add, we're, um, I think it was Kamara. You said that uh, we generate between one point six, between one point two and one point six percent. Uh, I'm sorry, one point two trillion, one point two to one point six trillion. Yes. Um, when you do the math, I mean, even on the low end, you're looking at. Uh, that 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 131 billion of discretionary income being 10% of our income so basically you would have to shift all of your income uh, all all of the discre- the discretionary income to black owned businesses and that's i mean that's just that's just math even at even at uh let me see well i'm going to say 1.6 let me just was, let me let me just what, do the math real quick well i'm going to yeah, say that's this. 8% I, so I, we'd have we i'm always leery of mm-hmm. black statistics, and and I'm and I know you know I'm using statistics on one hand and another, but I know my family for years did not do the census. <laughs> how many other surveys are we not involved in, and how legit are they? So I mean, and you could you could push back on me and challenge me and say, well, Kamari, you know that that's, I think that's even that, across the board. I think that's pretty general across the board. A lot of people don't participate in the census per se. Well, I'm just using that as an example to show about surveys. Um, and you could push back and you could say, well, Kamar, you could say the same thing about this $1.2 trillion statistic that you're throwing out there. But, you know, I'm always leery about black statistics because it just seems like we never really get a good read. So if you, if you back, if you, if you back out, if you back out the numbers and you're saying it comes up to what, 136, I don't have my calculator in front of me. Well, uh, at one point, at 1.2 trillion, uh, 130, 131, Billion dollars is ten percent, ten point nine percent of the income generated. Um, eight at sixteen, that one thirty one drops to, or I'm sorry, one point six trillion. That number, or that percentage drops to eight point one. So I, again, I'm not, I, I'm not begrudging these ideas, but it's like every time we look to put the numbers together, the the it's it's vastly over the the impact that it could have would be vastly overstated. Why do you say it's overstated? How many you can't jobs? move. You can't move eight. You, if if you're if you're using two percent of your discretionary or your spending, um, your total overall spending, um, and you want to move to ten percent from you know to to add that additional eight, you don't even have it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's the the numbers aren't there. You can't you know you can't so, make eight percent ten percent. No, no, no. So, so the, the the thing would be to shift. So you're already spending that other 8%. You're just not spending it in your own community. You're not spending it with your businesses. It's already accounted for. So the question the question is, do we have reputable good businesses? Because I am a big proponent of black business, but I'm not a proponent of bad business. So I always like to put that out there. So how do we find other good black businesses to spend our money with? Because it's already being spent. It's It's being yeah. spent. 
Yeah, but I mean that. I think that has to come with a few. Um, how do I put this nicely? Um, we have to we have to kind of keep an eye on income inequality because there's in in all honesty there's no reason for a black business owner to pay his workers a living wage any more than it is a white one, other than you know the, the identification of race, which can I, I'm not gonna lie would definitely help, but when you're looking at a wealth inequality where the top 20 percent of black families have over half of the of the income. <laughs> What, what what incentive do they have to give it back? Well, it's not it's not giving. First of all, they're exchanging value for value. Right. The, the, the worker the worker is coming there to work is is making them able to do more business. I mean, I don't I don't really get into the whole one percent two percent wealth inequality. I think um, that has a whole another separate rationale and reasoning behind it. Um, but in terms of black folks, if we are already spending our money somewhere else, as, as Jonathan just said, we're spending it with many of the Koreans and hair. Um, how many Chinese food stores are there in, in, in black communities across America? Most of us go to them. So if we stop going to them and then we shift those dollars somewhere else, it would have a massive impact. Is it a bit idealistic? Maybe. But I think we had to keep idealism kind of in the forefront to keep our hope alive. And I'm not trying to sound like Jesse Jackson at all, but to keep our hope alive so we can start looking for ideas. Because if we don't, you know, keep these ideas afloat, we become kind of fatalistic and super pessimistic, you know, at best. Yeah, and I think that there's something to be said for for that point, Kamari, which is that, you know, a lot of the young people that I work with in the Black Lives Matter movement, the thing that I'm most impressed with with them is their ability to um, really not be constrained by these um, boxes that we've allowed to, to be what's expected. And um, a lot of the things, or I, I feel that a lot of the ways that we're going to overcome some of these uh, seemingly insurmountable numbers that Ricky's been going over and these issues we've been talking about is thinking outside of the box, thinking of things that we never thought not just possible, but never even thought would be in the realm of possibility. Um, because why shouldn't we? The thing is working with the system hasn't worked. So I'm, I'm very much for thinking of things very differently and radicalizing our populace to think the same way. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like in terms of education. And I do think that black businesses are a huge portion of that. Uh, and I do think that how people go about opening their businesses, what they're meant to do in their communities and how they interact with their communities is going to be critical. You know, I was just reading a, um, an article about, you know, there's been this big push after um, the Baltimore uprising to, help minority business owners in Baltimore and those who qualify as minority business owner, most of the people taking advantage of these, of these opportunities are not black people at all. Mm. And even in this scenario where it's very clear that these are black neighborhoods that were most affected, these are black people that are most affected by the issues and um, the situations that are being dealt with in Baltimore, even in addressing that we're still being left out. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. So it's important to look at like even these traditional ways that people are going about quote unquote addressing these issues. They're really not getting to the root of the issues, which is that supremacy is so steeped in all of these systems we're trying to work around and 
these workarounds don't work so we yeah. do I mean, need they, we do need to in short terms yes short but terms, they're not going to work largely no. when you talk about 50 years of this income gap being the same and we talk about 50 years of the unemployment gap being the same they're not working so we do have to think very differently and i think that we have to approach things from the from the point of view of like yeah well we've We've said it was impossible to do. Well, it's been impossible to live under these conditions. Yet, <laughs> exactly. yet we've been living. Yeah. So let's yeah. let's do that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm not saying that we shouldn't that that it shouldn't be a focus. But I think that it's kind of like I, I'd like to see a little bit more of a realistic number. If, we, if we're talking about shifting spending, how about double it over the course of ten years? How about triple it over the course of ten years? Because that's because that that level of commitment from everyone is going to take time um it no, no is, one overnight is just going to shift eight percent of, of their income that's in, true into one specific area that's Especially true no, we can't do it overnight no. no it's yeah. definitely going to take time you know what Again, no but I'm, you have to I'm, start I'm, somewhere i'm gonna push back a little bit and, and i hate to sound like i'm a maggie anderson fanboy but i, <laughs> I guess i am um one of the one of the comments she makes um in, in her uh ted talk is that we will get up in arms if and this is kind of pointed because we're on the Ferguson Network show. We'll get up in arms if there's a, a, a racial incident um, with, that will result in a death, and we will show up in March. She's saying that we need to do the same thing for our economics. Absolutely. <coughs> yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. And, and we because have to it's the economics. It's the, it's the economics that 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 pushes us to those other points. Yes. Yes. And that that's central. Um, the other thing too is I think we need to be. We need to basically be able to ride waves um, when we're talking about political when we're talking about political changes and policy changes because those things help too. It, 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 I'm, I'm looking at this from a multifaceted approach when we're talking about um, you know the the conversation around wealth inequality and increasing government spending, which honestly, if we're if it were fixed and it were fixed in the in the, in the right way. Well, yeah, pretty much. Even though, even in the worst possible way, as you could try and fix it, it's diff- it's going to disproportionately affect the black community. So when you're talking about wealth inequality, um, you know that be- not and not just within the black community, but within America as a whole. Well, guess what? We ha- we make up a disproportionate share of the poor. So you're you're likely to be able to we're likely to be able to see some reprieve there in order to help clear up some additional discretionary spending like that or when we're talking about increasing um uh increasing the output from the federal government and, and raising taxes on the rich well black people make up what 18 19 percent of fe- uh, federal state and local employees i'm hell i'm one of them so again when when you talk about increasing those or like increasing the spending to those it shows up in black families. It shows up with my parents who, because they had those jobs, were able to purchase real estate, were able to do things because they had the stability of, you know, the largest employer in the fucking country, uh, whether it be for blacks or, or whites otherwise. And they also had the, the, the financial means to be able to get things done. Um, I, anyone thoughts on anyone or from anyone about that? Well, I, mean, I, I I hear you. I'm 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 I haven't even read uh, Maggie Anderson's uh, you know book 
or anything. But I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm a proponent of internal controls. What is it that we can control that can shift the 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 the, the conversation, shift the dynamic that's this that's causing us to have problems? I know, like in my house, we we're not we're not buying a three hundred dollar tennis shoes. You know, if you want to buy some three hundred dollar tennis shoes, we give a forty dollar a month allowance in here, and you can save up all year to get those and shoot your wide in one load if you want to. That's entirely up to you, but we will not be buying those. You know, so, um, yes. but so so that's what I'm saying is that we control that aspect. That's entirely, and so he's learning right now. My 16 year old is learning right now. You know, if I really want to do something with my money that it creates something for me that I need to, uh, uh, I need to be able to make some decisions that are going to start the economic engine for myself. Mm -hmm. So he buys stuff from China and sells it on eBay. Oh, you know, and, wonderful. And I, you know, I mean, I said, I saw, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm so proud to see him do that, you know. Um, but hey, you know, I think that we have to start shifting that, 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 that thought in them by, you know, and, and in our culture by saying, what is it that we control? Like I said, we control where we buy the chicken from, we control where we buy the tennis shoes from, and we yes can and control no. where we buy the hair from. To a certain degree, you know. Yeah. I mean, well, and and that's that that's always been my concern. And this is and this is just looking back at like economic history. When you you go back and look at say times where there was more um, the financial regulations were a lot looser with respect to you know being able to just start your own black owned bank. Right. Um, it was it it was feasible to to go into that that sector well, Rick, when me, they made me... it harder. Yeah. Let me let me let me let me let me let me, let me help you. Let, let me help you with, with with one of my other philosophies too. Have you ever seen that movie, A Soldier Stories? The no. Soldier Stories, the old movie, Denzel Washington. Yeah, any, okay. So you, you know the, the 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 there's a scene where Sarge was on the side of the road. He was coming back from the from the uh, the the club, and, uh -huh. and the two white soldiers pulled him over, and he was down on the ground, and they said, "Come on, Sarge, get in the truck." Getting the, getting the chief, and Sarge looked up and he says, "I ain't doing nothing." You white boy, say. Remember that? See that part of the movie? Now, here's the thing. I'm, I only say that to say this: we have to stop getting our messaging from these people that desire to keep us oppressed. And there is a way to start a business non-traditional. The Koreans do it every day. They got flea markets everywhere. They've got all kinds of ways that they're making money that uh, uh, causes them to have economic freedom and economic uh, choices that we have got to stop thinking that when we open a business, that it means going down to the strip mall, finding a storefront, signing a lease that we can't afford, uh, and, and doing it in a certain way. We can get there. We can get there, but we've got to start right where we're at. I know dudes who make uh, – I know a guy down in Atlanta uh, that makes uh, uh, $70,000 a year hanging TVs on people's walls and hiding the wires behind it, a completely non-traditional business. When I saw him doing that, I was like, man, I'm, I, I'm bowing down. Hats off to you. Because he was able to actually see a market, get in it, and do it. We have got to stop thinking about things the way that people tell us to think about things and think about them from a different perspective. Just, right. That, that, that wasn't where I was going with it. That, okay. that wasn't... Um, I, I was pretty much... This is, this is the thing, and this is... Uh, has been a consistent trend throughout history. Anytime black people have shifted 
their employment or shifted their focus, their economic focus into one specific area, whether it be um, whether it be the financial industry, whether it be governments, uh, they start cutting shit or they start making it harder for small businesses to prosper. Black small businesses don't they, they fail many of them fail for the same reason that white small businesses do is that you have a large corporate structure. You have you have policies that benefit a large corporate structure. If your friend who makes uh who uh makes seventy grand a year um hanging TVs on the wall, if Best Buy or Walmart were to be able to come by and undercut him, he's done. Because that, done. The, the financial the financial um incentive for people is to is to go with what's cheapest. And it's a logical decision. That's what we're talking about. I I mean, I think I understand where you're going with it. I I would, I would be really curious to know what time frames you're talking about. Cause I don't think that's really happened in the last 50 years. When you see what? Well, really? If if you looked at the, when you've seen the, you look at the increase of black people in government positions, um, because, throughout the 70s, 80s, and most notably the, the early 90s, that's when we started hearing this talk about cutting government, and government's the problem, because you know it, it fed a narrative for those who are at, at the top, and they're primarily white people, but yeah, there are blacks and Asians who function, who, who profit from white supremacy just as much as uh, white people do, but there is... There's always been policy changes, and that's why I say a multifaceted approach is is, is key. Because the thing is, is that none of, most of these solutions aren't going to be able to help those people who are trapped inside the box. That pe- those people that we need to reach. But if they're able to get like a, a foot in the door at a government job where there's a strong there's strong union protections, they have longevity, they can that you know, if, and then allow them to transition to. Uh, starting a small business, or not even having to not even having to start a small business, but being able to raise their children on enough, and I think that that's a concern too, because those people then become people who can reinvest in black-owned businesses. Like this is what I mean by like a multifaceted approach. If you're gonna if if we're gonna advocate the um, us moving over and and making black owned business a larger part of our spending um we have to increase our spending as well it, it only it only makes sense i i'm still not um following that line of logic um but i, I think I, I think i understand what you're saying in terms of the shift i, I i'm not sure i would consider government an industry even though it, it is it is a big behemoth but it I, government in a lot of ways doesn't really provide any value. Now I know, right. I, I know we're, we're getting down into some philosophical, uh, not philosophical, I'm making the words here, philosophical kind of thinking, but government doesn't really create anything. It doesn't really make anything. And you could, you could really argue that government does a poor job because they pay too much for everything that they do. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, and it, it is always issues. So when you see black folks going into government and getting government spending, I mean, the, the Republicans have always been 
proponents of small government, proponents of less spending. Uh, and so, you know, after the Reagan era is what she actually did make government bigger. Um, ironically, uh, mm-hmm. you saw them wanting to cut, you know, do cutbacks. And we also had some massive wars. So I don't think it was that was solely a black issue. That was more no. of, a, of, no, an, no, no, of an American issue. Mm-hmm. And, and and so when I when I'm talking about Black America, like when I wrote the piece that I know you you read, it's looking at right. things that what what can we do? So STEM is is all the rave right now, mm-hmm. and STEM yeah I'm, yeah 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 STEM has really been the wave for a long time. Now we're just talking about it. So my question is, how can we do like some of the Asian countries and retool our own educational system? And again, this may be a bit I- ideological. Um, and idealistic, uh, because, you know, we're talking about how do we self-educate ourselves to begin to, to participate in that. So the average STEM job is $80,000. The average American job um, nation, nationwide is only 50000 and the average black job, black household is only making about 34000 So that that's that's a big disparity. So how can we start retooling ourselves to take advantage of those jobs? And we don't need to go to a traditional school, which I am a big f- in favor of, but there, there's other options than just mm-hmm. saying, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait to go to school or I'm going to wait to get a job to do some things. I mean, kudos to Jonathan's son. We, I mean, well, let me back up. I want to, one of my favorite lines right now is it was the best of times and it's the worst of times. So I think for black folks, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. So in the last 50 years, we've got more political freedom. We got more leeway to do things economically, but at the same time, a lot of things haven't changed. You know, unemployment's still double. We still have massive segregation across, uh, across the company, a lot of healthcare disparities and housing disparities and things like that. But right. we can do business all around the world. Yeah, all, you know, all 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 these kids have cell phones, smartphones. They, they can buy things like he said from China and sell them there. You can when he showed me those margins, I I, I almost dropped. I was like, wow, here's five hundred dollars, son. Get as right. many as you can. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. so it, it's it's those things we have to look at, and I mean, the the stories out there. You, somebody brought up the 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 guy in Atlanta making seventy thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Well, think about this. There's folks doing internet marketing. Just selling products online, making seventy thousand dollars a month. Now I, I look at that space, and I don't see a whole bunch of us. So a lot of times we miss the we miss these trends. You know, we miss these things. And you were talking about getting on waves. So that's what made me think about it. You know, we we have to get on some of these waves as well. We come on. We don't even. We we don't think we don't think it's legitimate. Number one, and then we think that this that, that it really doesn't exist. You know, like when we hear the stories of the $70,000 a month, but like you said, there really are people out there making $70,000 a month. I didn't believe for a minute that there was any, you know, value in buying some of the stuff that he was buying from, from, from China until I saw the margins. I was like, well, my goodness, you know, but this is what American companies have been doing for years. But this is the thing. I think for someone who's making, you know, well, let me, let me put this in the, um, numbers the uh lowest i'm sorry the let's see the highest tier the the top fifth of black america makes eighty nine thousand dollars and above that's that's where it is uh the um let's see the third i'm sorry the fourth quintile the second quintile the second highest anyway is fifty two thousand um, the third and fourth and below is 
32,000 and below. That's where it tops out at. So we're talking about 60% of black people who can't afford to give their son $500 to go make this, to, to go yeah, invest in. I would you, start you see what I'm saying? Like these types of, the, these types of, can they yeah, do, this, I, these are the problems we need solutions to. Can they do 20? Yeah, can they do 20? Yeah, Ricky, yeah, they can, look, Ricky, we didn't start with $500. We started with him. I mean, he showed me, and I said, okay, well, here's $500. You can you can increase your margins by buying more of it at the same time as opposed to mm-hmm. spreading it out. So I gave him uh, his allowance. It was $40 a month. It's $50 a month, okay? So I gave him 10 months' worth of allowance at one time. Then he was able to see the value in, instead of making them buy those $300 shoes, making this large purchase, and then he was able to make enough margin to buy the shoes and still keep his little machine going that makes his money. And that's so, but but right, even if people who can't afford even to if, give their kids no, allowance, even if even if there's a starting point for everybody in this economy, I really do believe that. I still believe that there's a start. When I was when I my my father was incarcerated, I used to go down and I used to clean boat decks for money. There's still ways that kids can start the process. In the summertime, there's grass that needs to be cut. I'm just saying there's ways that, that money can be generated to begin to start the process. But here it is. It's what that kid or what that parent does with that money that is either going to set that kid on a, on a path to financial freedom or financial failure. Uh, and that's, that's what's happening. When we get the money, when our kids right now, they're thinking like a lot of us think. When we get this money, we're going out to the store, we're going to get some clothes, and we're going to get some shoes. They're not they're thinking in a consumerism vein as opposed right. to in, in, into a, a vein that's going to cause them to, to, to be owners and operators. And that's the dynamic that we need to be changing. That we're never going to be uh, – my boy is never going to have the capital of a white boy. I'm never going to have the money to give my son that other people have to give theirs. Some people can't afford to give – their kids, uh, some people in my community can't afford to give their kids what I give my son. But everybody can do something. It's a matter of choice. When a mother uh, says, look, son, I'm going to allow you to buy a $300 pair of shoes or $200 pair of shoes, that's a, that's a discretionary choice. The thing is, is that we don't have enough messaging going out here to that mother that can show her. Not only could just your boy sell stuff on eBay with a computer from down at the, at the, at the library. If you don't have a computer in your home, you can go down to the library, log in, and conduct an a, a eBay business because you only need the computer for you know, an hour or so to be able to put your listings up and start a revenue generator. That's the conversation that we've got to have if we ever want to come out from up underneath the, 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 the tyranny of this white supremacist economic system. We've got to be able to figure out ways to put the messages out there that cause people to stop thinking like how we've been trained to think because we've been trained to think there's really no hope with this. You can't do that with this. You, you only got $20. And there's boys who can take $20 and work that up into something that will just amaze all of us. That's right. I mean, yeah. one of the first. Right, but ones. what does that do for the average? What does that do for the average black person? Because I mean, or even. I mean, well, I would hope we, that I would hope that it motivates them to understand that there is something. If you said, "Look, what can I do with twenty dollars?" I would, I would, I would say, Let, "Let's show you what you. Let me show you what you can do with twenty dollars." Right. You know, I would hope that the average black person would say, "You know what? As opposed to today, we're going to spend twenty dollars down here at McDonald's. Let me see what we can do with twenty dollars. Let me see what we can do with even forty dollars." I'm a the big average, oh, I'm sorry. 
And I was going to say, I'm a big, I'm a big history buff. So in the, in the piece that you uh, read, Ricky, you know, the first thing I said is we need to ad- ad- adapt an abundance mindset. And the reason I say that is the people who have lived in the worst, the most abject poverty ever in the history, probably of the world, but at least in the United States, where our ancestors are slaves. And how many slaves were able to buy themselves out of slavery? Now, every situation wasn't equal, but I would venture to say that the average slave back then level of poverty was 99% times worse than what we currently have now on average, on average. So I think we have to start looking for ways on how we can be successful instead of, you know, kind of just repeating the same thing that's been beaten to our head and it's been beating all our heads. You know, you got to do 10 times more than, than what the average white guy does. Well, guess what? We're not really even competing against white people anymore. We're, we're competing against everybody. Yeah. You know, so the, the dynamic is changing. We have to change our paradigm as well. What I hear you guys talking about are two, two different things. One is um, a consciousness shift that needs to occur. Uh with our approach to what success means. Okay. Uh, and how we attain success. I do agree with that. I think that the definition of success needs to be shifted and how we apply that to our lives needs to be shifted. And I also think it's interesting. I'm, I'm doing this, this challenge right now called the black author challenge where I'm reading nothing but black books for 12 months. And I have a bunch of people that are doing it with me. And it put me in mind of what you were talking about, Kamari, with regard to making some conscious decisions on how how we choose to spend our money or our time or anything else for that matter. And it was interesting when I started asking people if they wanted to do the challenge for with me, the biggest thing that I got back was, well, I don't know if I like what black people are going to write about. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. That's crazy. Oh, and wow. I said... Yeah. That's well, black supremacy, though. That's, I, that's, it that's, is. It is. When I and say, this you is, know, that's, that's, this a mindset, is, that's, that's a mindset that's It been, is. It is. And this is yeah. it's an illustration of what, what, I'm, what, what I think you guys are getting to, which is, you know, when I would say, you, I, I, said, I don't think you understand. If you like sci-fi, then read black authored sci-fi books. If you like right. mysteries, then re- read mysteries that black people write. Because guess what? We write all of them. We write every genre. We write every yeah. kind of book that you want to read. There's a black person that wrote that book. So it, 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 it's, it's a shift, though. Because when I said, every time I would say it to somebody, they would be like, oh, oh, I didn't think about it that way. They made an assumption because I said there was a, a black, we're only going to read black authors, that that meant they were going to only read about, I don't know, racism. or I don't know what they thought, actually. Right, but right. they had this preconceived well, notion yeah, that if black people are involved, it means X, Y, Z. And so th- there, there's a fundamental shift that has to happen where it's like, no, everything that we've been told, everything that we've been taught, everything that we've been fed through this filter of white supremacy is hey. wrong. It's not just wrong. It's a blatant lie. And that is where we need to start confronting people. And I think it will reach people, the average black person that you mentioned, Ricky, because they too have been sold a lie. They've been sold a lie that they're not good enough. They've been sold a lie that they can't do anything from the station that they're at. And I'm not saying they're going to be able to achieve everything that the, the, the a pie in the sky um, ideal of life for themselves. But I do think that they can do more than they give themselves credit for. Absolutely. That's where Absolutely. I think the shift yes. needs to happen. Yeah. Ricky, I, mean, I, I, I want to come back on I want to come back on your show and tell you the place that I started from 
um, in May the 20th, 2011, what happened to me and where I started from. Um, it, it, because I think that we need to get back to encouraging and inspiring our people to write where, wherever they're at, whatever position they're at in life, as long as you have breath in your body and a, and a sound mind and, and, and a, an able body, there's a place for you to be able to make something of yourself and to make a way for yourself. The um, I, I, I love Stephen Bantubico's quote where he said, the greatest weapon in the hand of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. We often take these messages that have been pumped out there. You've got to do 10 times more than the other person. You know, you've got to do things this way. You know, go to school, get a good job so you can come out. Go to school so you can get education so you can get a good job. We repeat these and we regurgitate these and these become part of the way we think. And and, and it's, it stops us from being self-learning and autodidactic and learning on our own ways that we can achieve greatness. Um, so I, I, you know, just to echo what, uh, you know, Leslie just said, we, we don't, everybody that's, everybody that's here, everybody in this country that's here, there's, there's some horrible scenarios that people are living in. But I believe that if they get inspired and if they really start changing the messaging that they're getting from the people that they're getting it from, yeah. they can, they can actually change. And I, and I do, world. I do think that young people are getting this message. I, I hear it from them. I see, you know, they're at the heart of the black lives matter movement where you see these young leaders that are like, yeah, I'm not going to listen to what the system is telling me. And I don't believe what you tell me about my people. And I don't believe what you tell me about myself. And I don't believe what yeah. you, what you want to say about black culture and black people and black life I don't believe it anymore. And it's a big shift. You know, I think about, I was talking about this earlier on my other podcast that, you know, white supremacy has done such a horrible um, disservice to society in general, but to the psyche of the black person, it it has been a devastating uh, generationally um, exponential problem that we have revisited these same issues on our children and our parents have done it to us. It's very, very um, insidious the way that it operates because what it does is if you want to be successful, it puts you in a mindset that everything you are is not successful Uh and everything that they are is successful. So you start off if you want to achieve to not be you. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. psychologically is just so yeah. fucked up, and That's it creates—it's so, right it's so, so yeah. damning. It's so damning, and it starts damning you from kindergarten, from preschool. Right. It starts immediately. Right. So starts in the womb. It starts immediately, and these are the kind that when I when I say the things we're coming up against, we have to go to these base level places. It's because of that. When I look back on my own education, and I had an amazing education through. All the public schools I went through, I went to a private boarding school for high school. I went to Northwestern University. I had an amazing education. But throughout all of that, my idea of achievement was to achieve to whiteness. Yeah. That's what my idea of it was. When I look back, what was I trying to do? That's what I was trying to do because I believed that's that's the only way I could be successful. That is That's the gold standard is, in this country. That and in this is world. success. And I think that when we start to look and say, you know what, that doesn't have to be the definition of success anymore. And yes. that's where that's where the power is going to come in. Where people really will say, Hey, if I don't have to be like that, then me, whatever I am, I can I can redefine success for myself and decide how I'm gonna get there. 
I think the biggest yeah. way that, I, that, again, that blacks can overcome white supremacy is really focusing on their blackness. Um, and, and a lot of people disagree with me. I do not. Uh, I agree fully with you. I agree fully. I'm a a late bloomer black man. Okay. (laughs) You know, I'm gonna make that admission on on the pod on a podcast. I'm a late bloomer black man. I grew up in Key West, Florida. Okay. There's not but a handful of black folks down there. And the reality is I didn't have my experience until I made it to Georgia, you know, but once you start learning that, you know, uh, who, who was it? Uh, uh, Malcolm's, uh, uh, the Elijah Muhammad said, you know, once you start learning a knowledge of self, of self, you create such a value. You, 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 you start expanding in areas that you never really could expand in because you were, you're not trying to fill somebody else's checkbox anymore. So, yeah. Well, and that, I mean, I agree that all the, the things that we've talked about are going to have a positive effect over the long run. But I think one of the things that can accelerate it is is government spending because it's been it's it's helped. Um, when you think about poverty and what what just what poverty does to a child and how difficult it is for a child to learn while they're in poverty, mm. um, and then you have a disproportionate amount of black people in poverty. No matter what the fuck you teach them, they're not learning as well. And it's not a matter of you know, and and that's just that's just human nature. It's not even about it's it's just about how you're treated so for me it's always been like the end of white supremacy even from an economic standpoint has to be for me a trim the bushes while we attack the roots solution the the government spending and those certain political uh certain policies like wealth inequality and um an increase in um, entitlement spending that that that's the kickstart that we could use it's not that this that would help accelerate the process. It's not it's the process still has to happen that we move away mm-hmm. and we attack the roots of the economic hold of white supremacy. But if you can't get to the roots because the the, the branches are in your way or it's making it more difficult, it only makes sense to trim them in the in, in the process. And now I think that said, that's what I'm that's what I'm getting at. But you said I was idealistic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, said, no, I don't call that. Said, no, really. Okay, so I mean, I agree with you one hundred percent that the government mm-hmm. could do a lot more to uh, root out poverty. You saw that with the New Deal with Eisenhower when he just hired a massive mm-hmm. bunch of people to do things, but that was for the overall betterment of America as a whole. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward to twenty fifteen, and we're only really talking about the black issue. What? What? How many votes in Congress are we going to get? Yeah. To do that, and I mean, it's a really, it's a really deep. Well, some, well, wait a minute, but to really do something like that, we would need a really strong black political infrastructure, which we don't have, and that's a whole yeah, other. That's but, a whole another show, whole, probably. That's a whole another conversation. And, and like, 19, it, is, it is linked to to um to white supremacy to a certain degree, but you know, you really had to think about that. So, how many votes will we get in Congress and Senate to vote for a bill for black folks? And equality for black folks, wealth inequality, income inequality. I don't see it happening. <clears throat> Matt, not only, in 1968, they had the, yeah, in 1968, they had a, the Kerner report came out and it was, came out in a very similar time to what we're dealing with right now. It came out in the time of civil unrest and black riots happened all across, across in some major urban areas and they, they launched a commission called the Kerner Commission that did a study on 
what were the causes of this? And it's the exact same causes that exist 50 years later, the exact same things, lack of educational opportunity, lack of economic opportunity, uh, basically white supremacy materialized. And mm-hmm. basically the exact same thing they did then is the exact same that they were doing now, which is nothing. They took that report, they trashed it, and they came up with their own way to deal with what they felt was the black problem. We're not going to get a problem from over here on Capitol Hill, uh, a solution to uh, black America's problem from Capitol Hill. Um, the, the best oh, thing that we can... Yeah, we can, if, if, they give us, if they can give us some money, I would be like, great, let's take that and let's work with that. Even if the money comes, which, it, you know, I mean, it would be idealistic to think that they would do anything for us, okay? But if the money would come, if we just use the exact same mentality that we've been using over the last 50 years, which is to spend it on other communities, we'll be back in the same position again in, you know, in, in, in rapid succession time. Absolutely. Yeah. I, like I said, this is this is about uh, the solution that I'm talking about is more so uh, trimming the head or trimming the, the branches because yeah, that that mentality has to change. And I think I don't think it's really all that idealistic to to expect the government to do something about the problem with poverty. And when you attack poverty, because black people are disproportionately affected, you thereby help more black people than you would focus trying to focus on just black poverty because there's no way in hell I agree any there's there's any there's any political will to do that so, yeah, it's yeah but I don't even that I don't even think there's a will on the government's poverty. part to attack poverty I don't even right. they need poverty let's let's yeah. call a thing a thing here you know poverty works for the government it always has it's not something yeah. that they see as a scourge they're okay with children starving they're fine with people living in, you know, homes that are rotten and slumlords holding the bag. They have no problem with that. They never have. When you see every uprising that has happened, we could go all the way back to, let's say, New York City and um, the garment district fires. Right. They were fine with these women and children working in horrible conditions. It, it's only when people rise up that something changes. The government never takes steps ahead of time. They're never going to be yeah. like, oh, no. let me come help y'all just because. They don't do that. Yeah. No, it's re- they're, they're purely reactionary. And yeah. I think we can, we can wa- ride some of the progressive wave with regard to um, income inequality and to using that as fuel to, to get out of white supremacy too. Because think about just, just from a simple um, – Increasing the earned in- income tax credit or raising the bar for which you can receive it. That's something that has actually been floated around. It's not the most popular idea at the moment, but it's something that people are getting behind increasingly. And that I, I, I'm seeing it maybe as one of those waves that we can catch early because if you're going to if you going to increase the um, the earned income tax credit, that's an, that's an extra thousand dollars to do what you want to do or five hundred dollars to go invest in in say a black owned business or to spend at a black owned business or to to be able to give your child to go to go do the same and teaching them those types of things we can we can hop on board with politically without much without needing all that much cover because white people are kind of tired of it too you know when it gets to a point where they're tired of shit we just we let them fix it and then we 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 should then take that money and fix ourselves but I mean, that's something that we don't do. And I think that 
But I think this we've requires seen, a multitude of but reasons. But we've seen or, time and time again that programs that are meant to benefit, uh, let's say that in theory could benefit black people, are really mm-hmm. used to benefit everybody. But we can look at affirmative action. Yeah. We can look at affirmative action and see that the biggest proponent and usage of affirmative action have been white women. Yep. This is the facts. Mm-hmm. You know, we we you know people. This is one of those things that 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 is one of those stories people tell and people believe. You know that affirmative action is what helped black people. It's just it's a lie. It's just not true at all. It's not. Yeah. It helped. It helped. Certainly, there were programs that that benefited individual black people. But if we're talking about on the whole, that's not yeah. what happened. That's not, not what happened at all. At all. No. Yeah, no. I mean, when it, you talk so about when credit. you talk about them. Oh well, no. Just to its credit, um, it did it did affect black people disproportionately but it wasn't very much if i if my memory serves me correctly like it still benefited us overall as a net gain but it really wasn't much but have we taken that net gain and then invested it back in our own communities well do you see it's hard it's hard to do it at that moment because Mm -hmm. i there wasn't this enlightening moment of people having discussions like the one we're having now at that time and so you have people like our president who 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 strive to achieve whiteness in order to excel. That's the only path there was. I'm not judging. I'm just talking about the facts as they are. Um, And this this is an issue that happens. I think this is one of the break points between generations right now is um, this shift hasn't happened very quickly. And and the breaking point between the two generations is is this awakening and the younger generation, and there's a little bit of lag, lagging behind in those that have come before them because we were our heads are screwed up. I mean, it just yeah. is what it is. Our heads are messed up, and <laughs> and it's it's a very difficult thing to contemplate when you don't know how you're going to pay your rent next month to have the time to sit down and have an existential conversation with yourself about your blackness. It's not easy to do. It's a luxury to have the time and the energy and the intellect to put towards that. It really is. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of ways that we can affect the problems that come into our communities that are very non-traditional. Um, you know, a few weeks ago in Baltimore, um, Operation Helper Hush went down there and they just decided to do a free farmer's market one day Wow! in Gilmore Homes. They just said, hey, come down, donate stuff. They called some stores. They had some black owned businesses come through. They had bread, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, fresh meat, free for uh, everybody in the community to come get. And I'm not saying that's a sustainable model, but it does speak to the fact that we don't need to go traditional routes to address the problems that affect our communities just because that's the only way it's been done before. We don't oh, need uh, yeah. we don't need a multi-million dollar um non-for-profit organization run by white people to come in and help our communities. That's not always the best thing for a community. We have right. to go into these situations and each of these problems and attack them by listening to the people that are affected by them and really trying to understand what would be the best way to to address the issues that are there. I think if we can address some of these specific issues, it makes it a lot easier for people to step into their blackness. And that's where we can get this awakening for people to see, hey, we should be investing in black owned businesses. Hey, we do have purchasing power. We should be using it in a smart and different way. But we can't do that when people are really trying to scrape $20 to get to work every every week. Yeah. We can't. We just can't yeah. do it. 
Yeah, and I, that's what I mean. There has to be some immediate reprieve within the, in the next five years. It ha- and it's the only place from which that can come, logistically speaking, is from the, the government. government. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's I mean, it's, I, it's I, unavoidable, I, and I, I I don't like saying it. I, I'm I'm it sucks, and I've been trying to find ways around it. But within the next five years, that's the only way it's going to come. Hey, Ricky, I really like you, so I'm going to tell you don't hold your breath on that one. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because, <laughs> I, 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 you know, with, with uh, Leslie, you were talking about earlier in terms of uh, uh, there, there's, there's they, whatever they set up, it always has a way that it really doesn't benefit us, you know. It, there's, uh, there's planned obsolescence yeah. in, in the way that the federal government deals with, um, with us, you know, that it, it there's a plan. I mean, I'm not saying they're trying to exterminate us, but, you know, I mean, that could be a logical inference because if you look at what was done with the Native Americans, they followed every policy that the U.S. federal government put out, okay? And they did everything according to the rules that was that, that, that were established for them. They now live on reservations where the unemployment rate is quadruple what the regular unemployment rate is. The uh, illiteracy rate is is ten times what everybody else's is. The alco- the rate of alcoholism and suicide is at least three times what everybody else's is. So, if we need a working model for what uh, the federal government may have in mind for another minority group that listens to them, that might be our, our best working model. So, I don't. I'm not. You know, I'm never going to be one of these ones who says, you know, the government is the only thing that they're going to. We got to be waiting for them because we're going to be. There is no help coming from them. You know, no. if anything, I see, I see America really polarizing more now so than than, than they have in the past before. Uh, you know, people are becoming more involved. So we need to now really learn about us. Take this moment since 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 we're being forced into our our, our racial corners. Let's learn about us. And I guarantee you, if we just Took the money that we spend on chicken, tennis shoes, and hair, and started thinking about where we could spend that money. That something that was self-deriving in our own communities that we could change our own economic outcome. I, I gotta. I mean, I gotta the one get thing. The, phone. the one. I mean, I think the one thing that's actually pretty easy to do. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with the Gorilla Gardener. I'm a big TED Talks fan. Yes. Mm. But there's a guy. There's a guy in yep. LA who. Created his own crib. He made his front his house a garden. The front of his heart, right? On easement, we can do that in so many ways. Uh, You know, seeds, a little bit of water, some planting, some wood, maybe for some of the boxes. But that's something that could be done almost anywhere. So you're at least attacking some of the food deserts and making things a bit more livable. Uh, I mean, I think that's something that that could be done very easily. There's a lot of easy solutions. There are, you know, our, our, our brothers yeah. and our brothers and sisters started something called Susu, which started in West Africa, I and mean, you probably hear about it a lot um, with the Caribbean folks. We can implement our own form of Susu, yeah, which is basically, uh, you know, it's four of us on the phone right now. Let's say we put up twenty five dollars a week, yep. and mm-hmm. then you know, at the end of I don't know six months. We give the money to Jonathan to, to fund his son's college fund program or to buy a new car or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. I mean, another thing we also have now, too, is, is crowdfunding. Yep. It's, to me, mm-hmm. it's the best thing since sliced bread. Absolutely. And, mm-hmm. and once they get the equity portion worked out, um, I think we should be leveraging that to, to nobody's um, – to everybody's benefit, excuse me. And I think I we've mean, been seeing that. I mean, I see people, you know, they're crowdfunding, they're – 
graduate degree. There are crowdfunding, mm-hmm. plenty of things mm-hmm. that, you know, I see young people doing this more and more. A uh, uh, young woman that I met, Victoria, she's actually from a DC area. She said to me, you know, everybody kept telling me to do it. I didn't think people want to support me, but I'm doing it anyways. And she put it up and people were like, yes, I'll throw one with you, Victoria. I want to invest in you. I want to invest in the person you are, but you need young people that believe in themselves to want to do stuff like mm-hmm. that. And, and, mm-hmm. and we do need to try to start to instill those things. I hear, you know, Philip Agnew from Dream Defenders is one of my favorite people on the planet because, you know, his vision for the future of our people is so vast. It's so wide. It's so outside the box. You know, he sees us off the grid. He sees us doing everything ourselves. He sees us, you know, growing our own food and having our own businesses and, and, and having our own communities that are that's separate from everything else that's going on because we we are enough to sustain each other. It's, that's that is true. Um it just takes some different kind of thinking. And I, I'm hopeful that the Black Lives Matter movement is going to move in that direction. I think that this police brutality angle is, is, was the, the, the foothold we needed to galvanize people. But I see it, I see it growing much bigger than that. I see it, you know, tackling so many issues that have languished in our communities for way too long and yeah, stopping these narratives of it being our fault. And stopping yeah. these narratives that um, this wasn't something that was deliberately done to us because it was and continues to be. So right. I, I feel like when people wake up to that fact, they can break themselves out of these cycles and say, whoa, I'm being manipulated and I don't even realize that that's what's going on. And when people wake up to that, they change. Nobody wants to feel like they're the, that they're the schmuck. Nobody wants to be the fool. Nobody wants to be the one that everybody's getting over on. And that's what's happening to our communities right now. Everybody's getting over on us. Everybody. Everyone. Everybody. Because we were, I mean, we had been excluded from a lot of the wealth that was given away by the federal government and created and then given away. Yes. To be quite honest. Um, What, what, What I like about the Black Lives Matter movement is this. It's an internal message as much as it's an external message. Every time we say it, Somebody on the outside has to realize that we're saying not only to them, but more importantly to us, that our lives matter. And we're when we take ownership of our lives like that in that in that respect, they uh, they're going to realize that this value creates an, a, a real force to be reckoned with. We value our lives. We value uh, our 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 skills and our our input to our own communities. And that's that's so when people we we went through this. Uh, I know every all the people in the police accountability movement are you going to say all lives matter you're going to say black lives matter i'm like listen we're going to say black lives matter and when i hear you say you got a problem saying black lives matter i know you're damn sure lying when you talk about when you say all lives matter Mm -hmm. you know so we it's like i said it's a powerful movement um i'm I'm really thankful to 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 have you all invited me to speak tonight with you guys uh about the issue of white supremacy and and how it's pervaded into our mindsets until we free ourselves from the thoughts uh, and the ways of other people that have trained us to think the way that they want us to think, uh, we will forever be in bondage. So the first step is, is just, you know, if they tell you to go left, go right and ask for directions. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Go um, right and ask for directions. Well, we're coming up on our two hours here. We could probably talk for another two, I'm sure. And maybe we'll do a second mm-hmm. uh, episode, Ricky, because I think this is a great um Topic A, and I also yeah. think that we're going to see some some things coming up in the next coming months, uh, especially this summer. I think it's going to be really interesting. I know that at the um, convening in July that 
these larger topics are going to be a big uh, focus. And um, the hope is to gain some consensus on what we all want to work towards and take those those values and goal sets back to our communities and implement them in ways that work for each of our different areas. So I'm excited to, to have that opportunity. I don't think anything like this has ever been done to say, hey, all you black people that are sick of this bullshit, come here now. We're going to talk about this. I don't, the, the idea of that is so radical because let's not forget that there not that long ago was a time where we couldn't even gather in more than four. Yeah. It was against the law. Okay. Mm-hmm. We couldn't even attend funerals together. So the idea of that is, is really powerful and I'm very excited about it, but let's go around to some final uh, thoughts. Kamari, we'll, we'll start with you. Um, sure, sure. Well, one, thanks for having me on. It's been a great discussion. Um, hello, and, and I'm glad to meet everyone. Um, hopefully, I would love to stay in contact. But, you know, my final comment I would just say is think outside the box and, and direct your, your money. Excellent. Um, and, Kamari, just uh, one more time, tell us where everyone can find you and, and connect with you. Sure. I mean, you can connect with me on Twitter. Uh, it's Ask Kamari. I, ask, I answer a lot of questions, financial questions for folks uh, just trying to spread financial education, financial mastery. You can find me on Facebook, Ask Kamari. Um, and my website is Ask Kamari, A-S-K-C-A-M-A-R-I. Awesome. Jonathan, how about you? Final thought. I echo a lot of what Kamari just said. I think that uh, we have to get to the point where we are uh, thinking outside the box, and, uh, you know, I'll say it again. If they tell you to go left, go right and ask for directions uh, because we cannot continue to get our liberation from our oppressor. And, uh, you know, I just uh, I'm thankful that uh, we had this conversation. I'm thankful that you invited me. That when, when, when Ricky said it the other night uh, about the topic, I said, well, you know, I, I know I can talk intelligently on police accountability matters. I'm a little little sketchy on 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 economics and 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 so forth but when you tie it into white supremacy i i guess you know some of it's common sense to me but you know i'm I'm thankful that you invited me thanks for having me awesome and where can everyone um find you and and um and the uh the group the national association against police brutality okay you can go to our website it's at uh, www.naapd.org uh we have a facebook page uh it's uh, NAAPB, facebook.com forward slash NAAPB. And we have a Twitter account. Uh, it's uh, NAAPB as well. Awesome. Ricky, final thoughts? Um, I'm really glad I had this discussion. This was, this was, this was fun and it was engaging. Um, I think we've brought forth a lot of ways for people to get ahead um, and for us to get ahead overall over a long term. Um, but the problem with an economy is that it's based on people doing logical things. Mm. Um, and so we, the, the way everything is set up, it's still logical for a black person to stay asleep. And until we can get to a point where honestly education and in, like education and poverty are fucking one in one, basically, um, the more educated you are, the less likely you are to be in poverty. The, the, we have to work on education and part of that has to do with not just public education and white supremacy, the, the um, white America or the American culture, but black American learning about our history. That being said, you know, that takes money. It takes somebody to foot the bill. 
And I, that's that's always been my biggest thing is how how are we going to find enough fuel to to light this fire, the fire that we want to light. Absolutely. You can, as always, find our show at Ferguson Response Network on iTunes or Stitcher. You can go to fergusonresponse.org. You can find Ricky occasionally on Twitter at A-U-A-D-O-T-O-R-G. You can also find him usually on facebook.com backslash AUA movement and on auamovement.org. You can find me on Twitter at Leslie Mack. That's M-A-C. And also you can find my other podcast at interracial John, that's J-A-W-N dot com. Uh, Kamari knows what John means. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, I do. And, uh, and it's John. It's, it's John. John. I know. But if I say it like that, then people really, <laughs> then I definitely have to spell it. Uh, thank you guys so much for being here tonight. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome talking to all three of you. And I'm sure we'll have you back on the show again soon. So we'll all talk right. to you soon. All right. Have a good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.